Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow night and it's time to welcome you once again to Blog Talk Radio, my my favorite half hour of the week and uh, the chance to meet uh, some pretty amazing people and share them uh, with all of you. It's just a great joy of mine to do this and to uh, broaden our minds and our perspectives and the, on our knowledge, just from a lot you can do in a half hour, uh, talking to somebody who probably done something you've never even dreamed of doing. And uh, that is certainly ca- the case tonight when we uh, have a, a, a wonderful guest who has been in photojournalism for over 30 years and uh, 29 of those years with World Vision International, traveled to uh, Africa, Eastern Europe, Latin America, Middle East, Afghanistan, uh, all sorts of places that you and I have not been to, and uh, uh, reported, wrote stories, talked to people, took pictures, took movies. Um, what a what a deal! And uh, uh, we're going to try and just cram a little bit into a half hour uh, from from uh, 29 or 30 years uh, that would be impossible to put your arms around. But uh, this is going to be a whole lot of fun, I'm sure, and uh, a, a, a lot of uh, learning at the same time. So please welcome to Blog Talk Radio, John Schink. John, welcome. Thank you very much, John. It's great to be here, <laughs> okay. as they always say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, um, what a what a career you've had. Uh, I, I, let's try and just uh, a, a jump. Let's get just a little bit uh, into the very beginning. And uh, is this something that you've always wanted to do? How did you get into being a a photojournalist? Well, it uh, goes back to uh, university when I was studying film at UCLA, and uh, they had gone to the quarter system. During the quarter system, uh, as I was nearing graduation, uh, they didn't have any courses that would help me finish my degree. Uh, so I decided to do some elective courses and do journalism. Uh, I've always been on the, just really uh, you know, off, off in the corner of my eye. Uh, but my parents rejoiced. Uh, I think that they always knew that the whole the film business was fairly, fairly dodgy and difficult to break into. But my mom piped up and said, oh, that's wonderful. Mr. Brush always said you should write. And he was an English teacher in high school. 
<laughs> so I did take uh, I did take some journalism and then graduated from UCLA and then took some more journalism and uh, did 14 years in newspapers and 29 years with World Vision. Wow, wow. Um, so uh, you know what what kind of person is good for this? I mean, what? Uh, well, you know what? What kind of interest or, or personality does someone need to have to be able to do uh, what you've done as a career? Well, I can tell you what a person, uh, what person shouldn't go into journalism, and that's a <laughs> shy person. <laughs> you know, you have to, you have to really uh, ultimately enjoy people. You must, you've got to enjoy talking to them because no matter what you're reporting on. Politics, a disaster, uh, um, a story for the family page, whatever it is, you're dealing with people, and you've got to enjoy talking to people. And what I learned over time is that every person, no matter how ordinary, has some fascinating story to tell from their life, and that there's some value in that when it's shared with people, with others. Yeah. But don't um, be shy. You can't be shy. <laughs> now, was it was it, I'm just curious personally, was it always photojournalism or was that the uh, more of did that come in later? Did the photography come in later or were you doing that all along? Well, um, you know, when you get called a photojournalist, then everybody thinks that you only take photos. But uh, uh, because I was interested in film, uh, I had a still camera. Uh, I had a home movie camera at one point too, but uh, I had a still camera and I was always taking photographs. And as soon as I began studying in these journalism classes, I decided to work for the college newspaper. And so I just always carried a camera and there was something mm. to grab there. So I, I, I became uh, a little bit, I, well, I guess I became in certain circles kind of unique um, in that I was a, a writer who carried a camera but ultimately, um, I spent some very important years working for a newspaper in Toronto called The Sun, and they had what they called two-way men. Uh, a lot of other papers in Canada and the States have nothing like that. So I was a reporter who carried a camera. That always has worked well. That's always been uh, a blessing, obviously. Or, um, ultimately, mm-hmm. when I ended up working for World Vision, which – some people may or may not know about, but it is a Christian humanitarian organization. Uh, at any given time, usually uh, operational in about 100 countries in the world. Yeah. Um, generally, what kind of, with, with, uh, with World Vision, what kind of stories are you, are, are you, are, are you at, are you going to, um, disaster areas, or or more just uh, uh, observing what people are, are are like in in more poverty situations, or wartime, or or what? I, I suppose that it's all over the map. I would guess. Is that right? Well, what when I when I started with World Vision, I actually started uh, in Ethiopia, and. Uh, Boomers and some subsequent generations will remember that 1984-85 was the great famine in Ethiopia. Um, 
hundreds of thousands of people died. It was, um, as uh, one reporter from the uh, BBC said, it uh, was a disaster of biblical proportions. Hmm. So, um, so, so there I am working in an, in an emergency disaster, uh, and uh, and then the follow up, the recovery period. But I, I became very interested in the idea of uh, of de- just development, community development. Uh, and that is that's never been an exact science. Uh, over over decades, uh, uh, we have made all kinds of mistakes and found uh, all kinds of excellent ways to carry it out. Uh, kind of culturally, typically, you know, when you come from a developed nation, you think you know everything, and you move in and uh, uh, you start uh, constructing or uh, planning or doing whatever that uh, in your mind will seem to work in these circumstances. It actually, this is something that uh, was long before I got involved in development. There there was a long arc in which people were building white elephants, they used to call them massive hospitals uh, in in centers uh, in, in, in underdeveloped countries, whereas what people needed were small clinics that were immediately accessible to them wherever they were in an agricultural region in the mountains, wherever. Uh, so it was, it was a whole evolving, uh, 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 yeah, I could go on forever about that, but I was fascinated by that, especially because we were in the recovery stage of the Ethiopian famine. And then I got an opportunity to work in the African regional office in Nairobi, which meant I went everywhere on the continent. And hmm. I was, uh, as I say, fascinated about how one would uh, carry out effective uh, development in a variety of uh, environments. Uh, the disaster type stuff, I had done that as a, as a newspaper reporter, uh, breaking news, you know, specializing in, oh, get over there. We understand there's been a shooting or uh, get here. There's a five alarm fire or, you know, in one case, the Inn on the Park fire in Toronto, uh, you know, a massive uh, hotel complex. Um, mm. I wasn't so interested in doing that sort of stuff. And it was really uh, that breaking news was very much associated with a, what I call the prodigal son stage of my life in mm-hmm. which I had really turned my back on my faith. Uh, and it was a pretty wild time, a very stressful kind of work, which um, – we uh, we were our our therapy was to head for a bar afterwards, so I wasn't interested. Uh, that was kind of a part of my life. I didn't. I I just wanted to put behind me. But ultimately, uh, working breaking news gave me the skills to, uh, in a figuratively speaking, to parachute into a disaster situation, uh, like a civil war, like an earthquake. Uh, I've been to earthquakes in Iran and Pakistan into the, you know, into the responses. Uh, I, I, I knew how to start from scratch with, with virtually no resources and knowing nobody. Uh, so mm. that became uh, an area of my expertise in, in world vision. And so many of the places that you cited where I've been, those were man-made or natural disaster scenarios where I, w- I was working. But the but uh, the development part um, is what it seems like you were most interested in. 
Well, Can you tell us a little yeah, bit focus, more about focus, that? Well, the, the focus changed ultimately. I, uh, for about four years, I was doing nothing but development. And then, um, and then I started splitting my time uh, because, because of certain requests that came up hadn't come up for four years, and suddenly somebody shows up, the vice president of relief, and says, um, I'm just going into southern Sudan for the day. I need a communicator. Uh, and uh, everybody was gone from the office, including my boss, so I, I went in with him to a town called Capoeira, and I was able to hit the ground, uh, talk to people, take a lot of photographs, turn out two feature stories that were very informational, and that was kind of the beginning. Uh, then uh, then the, my abilities in that area were recognized. They hadn't been brought to the fore in the past. So um, ultimately, both of those aspects were part of what I considered my own personal ministry. And at one point, uh, again involving Sudan, uh, we, we had, my boss and I wanted me to go in and look for what they called pockets of famine. This meant getting way off into the bush and off the beaten track. And uh, it was a very highly political uh, situation. And so uh, that, was, um, uh, that was quashed, my going in. And he and I were deeply frustrated. And I ran into a friend of mine, uh, a good Pentecostal friend of mine in Nairobi, in the shopping mall. And she said, what's going on? And I explained, and she said, let's get together and pray about this. And that was the evening I, uh, I prayed, and I said, uh, God, you know, you gave me the skills to tell stories. You get me into the, into the places of greatest need, and you get me out, and I will tell those stories. Uh, and that was specifically referring in that one to a war zone, but, uh, and I went into a few of those. And uh, that prayer was answered. My, my professional life changed from that point on. At the same time that I was doing community development uh, stories, things kept coming up. I, I went with the international president of World Vision to Lebanon during the first Gulf War. Ironically, Lebanon had just come out of a 16-year civil war that had devastated the country, had been incredibly brutal, Yet during that first Gulf War, uh, you know, which had involved Saddam uh, Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, <laughs> Lebanon was the safest place in the Middle East. The scuds were falling on Israel and other things were happening around us. But, um, and I, I was uh, almost immediately requested, could I go to Romania for uh, a, a month? Uh, because the national director was going to be on vacation. And uh, that month was going to be the one-year anniversary of the fall of the Romanian communist uh, regime. And, you know, people, people who are old enough will remember that in 1989, that's basically when the Iron Curtain collapsed. Mm-hmm. And uh, in most cases, in most, um, within the, the Soviet Union and within their satellite states, most of the transitions were peaceful. But in Romania, a mob broke into the palace and executed uh, the, the tyrant who had run the country and, uh, and his wife. And so it was mm-hmm. a one-year anniversary of that, and World Vision expected a lot of media would come there. Uh, 
Ironically, something happened in Albania, and that's where most of the media had to put their resources. I was in Romania, that in myself, Albania, Romania, different. I'm in Mm -hmm. Romania. I just have time to go to all of those, what they used to call orphanages. Uh, The story, again, was first there was the violent uh, overthrow. A few months later, the media discovered that there were these orphanages where children had been put and neglected, and the, 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 these, uh, these orphanages were real hell holes. Hmm. And so uh, I, I got to see that firsthand and work with a Los Angeles television crew to take them to see the worst of it, to tell the story, etc. So uh, in a sense, uh, that was not a war zone, but it, in a way it felt like it. It was a spiritual war zone. It was a very, very dark uh, phenomenon. And it was something that had been happening across the Soviet Union forever because in that communist system, human beings were basically key ingredients in terms of production. And in Romania, the, the tyrant had been telling everybody to have as many kids as possible. Well, of course, as women get older, then there's a greater chance of, uh, of some kind of a mental or physical problem with the child. And now you've got five kids, and, uh, and the state comes along and says, don't worry about your problem, child. We'll look after that child. You get mm. back to work. And so these children were gathered there, and uh, I, saw, I saw children who were five years old who um, had mm. like two-word vocabularies. Uh, they ate with their hands, and they wore diapers. Because there had been a caregiver for maybe 25 kids. She can't pilot a potty train 25 Mm. kids. She can't nurture 25 kids. So, um, you know, these were were the kind of things I was very quickly uh, exposed to once I prayed that prayer. And within a few months, I and uh, and a colleague were smuggling food on the Nile. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and were the stories able to the stories you told able to make some changes uh, in things? Well, you know, my principal tool or my well, very important tool of, at that point for me uh, was not just my pen and my still camera, but a Betacam, Sony Betacam professional video camera that we had always had in the office. Um, hmm. somebody uh, had worked there for a couple of years, uh, knew how to use that, and then had, uh, uh, had to go back to Canada. So uh, uh, I started teaching myself and asking for uh, instruction and help, and I could carry that camera. What we found was um, an interesting avenue of, of ministry to the poor, and that was that if you could come out of some place, whether it was an institution whether it was uh, a war zone, with stark video, not the video, say, focused on the the combatants, but the video focused on the civilian victims, that um, we were able to take that video, present it to um, uh, a news service like Reuters. We weren't charging them. We were were just saying, here, here's a video. This is all this raw footage from uh, Mogadishu, Somalia. They looked at it and said, we want it. 
and they distributed it around the world. They had four, I think at the time, 440 customers around the world. This mm. was when CNN was just an idea. And so this is how we were, we were making change. Uh, Rwanda was a case uh, where uh, uh, that's, I'll try and make that a tight story, but people know that in April of 1994, you know, the genocide began. And it was one group, the Hutus, against another group, uh, the Tutsis. Uh, at least 800,000 people died in that genocide. Uh, when it began, um, the world was standing back and watching. And the uh, certain uh, UN agencies and such were saying, well, we don't know exactly what's going on inside, but it's not safe right now. So um, for, well, from the 7th, until the 25th, uh, the world was kind of standing and watching and trying to size the whole thing up. It was amazing how long it was taking. There were hmm. some very brave journalists in the capital of Rwanda, Kigali, who were getting out video footage. But they're in the capital. They're, they're watched over at all times. They could show a few bodies in a ditch and such. But um, uh, ultimately, what I did with uh, an Australian and a Ugandan uh, colleague was uh, we got ourselves a, a truck, a pickup truck, and my, uh, their cameras and my video camera, and we went down to southern Uganda, across the border into Rwanda, in, which I knew would be safe territory. There was a, an essentially a civil war, and the north was controlled by the Tutsis, who were the victims. I figured we could find the military, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, and say, okay, we've heard about all these places where people are being slaughtered. We have to see it. And that's what happened. And we got mm -hmm. out and got the footage um, on a plane to uh, one of our uh, uh, amazingly adept uh, media people in London, England, who had worked with major media for years, and um, he, he told them, hey, there's this footage coming of um, hundreds and hundreds of bodies in a church in Rwanda. Uh, that was the first time the, that extent of the genocide had been um, documented. So he, he wow. was at Heathrow and picked up the tapes, and the media essentially were lined up to take those tapes and copy them. And that was 29... 29th of April, 1994, a Friday. It was there was by that point a CNN. They ran it all weekend. The other networks. It was the evening news around the world. That footage. And uh, the next morning on a Saturday, the United Nations General Assembly called an emergency meeting and kickstarted a response in Rwanda. So, hmm. you know, nope. That you know, and it's. Uh, and nobody who attended that meeting knew who shot the video footage or the three people who went, you know, went in and got it. But that was, uh, that was, that led to a response. So, you know, well, you asked whether it made changes and such. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I would say so. Uh, John, <laughs> we, told, we spoke yesterday a little bit. Uh, uh, about about your faith and how uh, how it plays into this thing, and I uh, I've got to I've got to change the subject here long enough 
for you to tell the story of of because you know I'm I'm one of those very first uh, Jesus music people, and uh, you know I was going around and doing concerts with Andre Crouch and Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill and Love Song and all those people, and uh, so they're all my friends. And you, you got to tell us uh, how Larry Norman fits into the the story of your own faith journey. <laughs> I, I love telling that story, and and it was so much fun telling it to you yesterday because you knew Larry Norman. For yeah. for for me, as a, you know, like a, a nineteen twenty year old um, living in a, a middle class environment, attending a, a middle class church, uh, I and some of my friends, we were we were quite excited uh, by what was happening in the music scene. And what was happening at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, their coffee house called the Salt Company, their group called the Salt Company. They were like a Peter, Paul, and Mary group. They were wonderful. So I uh, went to a lot of concerts, and um, uh, I, was, I was a churched guy. Uh, and we went to a concert on a Saturday night at the sanctuary at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And uh, there were a number of artists, I think. Uh, there was a, see, there was a kind of a, heavy metal or heavy rock band called Agape. Uh, uh, there was Dennis Agajanian, uh, who was more of a folk artist. And then Larry Norman was the main act. And, and he performed his songs, and we knew them all by heart. And then he stood up, and he was basically doing an old-fashioned altar call. And uh, Larry was very much in your face. And he mm-hmm. said, uh, how many of you people sitting out there know that Christ died for your sins. Put your hand up. Okay, all the hands, you know, hands are going up and some aren't. And and then he said, uh, uh, how many of you up there would would be willing to die for Christ as he died for you? Stand up. Well, me and my two friends, we just flew out of our seats. And hmm. um, while there was, there was, there was no, it wasn't, it was that moment, but nothing happened. I just stood up. And, uh, and then it was later, the next day, and in the coming weeks, I realized something that had happened to me. That was my unorthodox born-again moment, and that's been a stamp on my life um, ever since. Uh, even during my prodigal son stage, uh, I wouldn't admit it, but... Uh, uh, you know, I was always looking over my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, so that was that was the moment there, and then there were some key moments uh, along the way that uh, uh, led me from a reporting to being a communicator for a humanitarian organization. One of them was to, I was just tired of uh, newspapers, and I, I quit my job at the Toronto Sun and set out to hitchhike around the world. And I was going to take two years. I was gone for a month, a year and a half. And I did Europe, Israel, and East Africa, and back to Europe, and then came home. So I never got around the world. But things happened during that time, which brought me back from my prodigal son status. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, wish we had time for all those parts of the story, too. But uh, I... I uh, 
I'd, I'd love to hear a little more now generally from you about how how your faith has informed this work. I mean, uh, it, it's got to have been connected uh, up for you somehow. And uh, how how does that how did that work? How did your faith play into the work you did for all those years? Well, uh, there's several things, of course. There's Matthew 24, you know, and, and Jesus says, uh, uh, when I was sick, you, uh, you know, you nursed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And uh, the disciples say, well, wait a minute. We never did any of these things. And then he, you know, he says, well, when you do this to the least of these, you have done it to me. That's always <laughs> been a motivator in in my work with humanitarian agency but as a journalist um uh when i when i was uh, on the road back i was i was uh traveling through east africa but i was on the spiritual road back um i would sit out on uh near the bow of this river boat going uh, up the nile and uh, we're actually going down the nile but it's uh <laughs> anyway <laughs> heading south through Sudan and through the Sud, which is a giant swamp. So I would read, uh, I would read my Bible. And one day I discovered Ephesians 5.11, which paraphrased, paraphrased is essentially, have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness, but instead expose them to the light. And hmm. I thought, that's a Christian journalist. <laughs> wow. And that has, uh, that has motivated me um, ever since. You know, you go, you go to Rwanda and you find a church where there must have been 600 men, women, and children uh, who uh, bodies lying exactly where they had been slashed to death. And it's, it was gruesome. And there were warnings when the video went out on television, you know, you may want the children to leave the room kind of thing. But that is taking deeds of the darkness and dragging them out into the light and people respond. Wow. Wow. Um, So, John, is that something that you think we can all do in some form? Uh, Yes. Uh, in everyday things and in you know and if you're if you're a volunteer uh um with uh, drug addicts or alcoholics or homeless or whatever kind of uh, you know my my sister she uh she runs an operation with sewers uh, they're they're like sewer activists they they um they sew they sew dresses They'll take T-shirts and other kinds of things and turn them into dresses for little girls, which are then given to medical missionaries, etc., going to Africa, because um, uh, this these girls have never had a beautiful dress, and uh, this is about how much God loves them and about their dignity, and uh, how some of them live in a culture where women are second-class citizens. That this allows them to, you know, to stand up and be proud. There's so many different things that can be done. Uh, and these are all things that uh, are dragging darkness into the light. Bringing darkness into the light. Wow. Exposing well, John, it to the light. Yeah. Yeah. I hate to say that um, our time's about up, but um, uh, what, 
what would be uh, something something you could uh, tell us here at the end? Uh, something that you'd like us to take away? What could we What could we as uh, just regular regular folks, regular believers in in our in the culture in which we live? Um, uh, what could we take away from this uh, this half hour? What would you like us to take away? Um, of course, I could say, read your Bible every day, <laughs> uh, but also, <laughs> you know, seek out uh, a variety of news sources. Mm. Uh, news is so much uh, about the niche now, conservative or liberal or whatever. Yes. Yes. Seek out news sources that let you tell you what is going on in the world. Um. Now there, there's there's so much suffering out there, and uh, oh. we we need we need to realize that uh, 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 you know uh, there's a there's a kind of triumphalism that often seeps into Christianity, uh, which I think uh, is a, is a real trap where people kind of think they have all the answers and uh, and I know it all and and it things things stop there. Uh, hmm. there, there, it's, I had to, uh, I had to realize, uh, as I began to go to Angola and Somalia and all these other places that, um, just, just the, 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 the weight of the fall, the story of the fall in Genesis, um, my, you know, I, I had a, um, a Krispy Kreme, kind of a view of theology thinking yeah we're all sinful but we're not that bad uh, <laughs> uh it's it's really bad and uh we need to own up to that mm-hmm. um well wow. that may not be you know the usual message people end on uh, but but at the same time we 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 uh we know we need to prevail well, through all of this uh and that ultimately it will all change yeah, and and of course not in this life. Yeah, but of course that's that's what uh, that's why we are so thankful uh, for the grace of God and and God's forgiveness, since uh, there is nothing nothing good in us, but certainly in the Holy Spirit, um, we can move forward. And uh, yeah, yeah, this has been uh, this has been wonderful, John. Um, uh, I, I thank you so much. I, this is one time I wish we, we, we only, we didn't only have 30 minutes because, uh, I, you could probably tell stories all day long. Uh, but, uh, thanks for sharing a, a little bit of your very, very interesting life, uh, with us. And it, uh, what's things like now, now, is it, uh, is it real quiet, John? Are you, are you bored or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 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 retired, uh, yeah. and I had uh, I had plans uh, for volunteer work, uh, which the pandemic has put a, a damper on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I uh, I had uh, I'd, I through the bulk of my newspaper reporting career, I was a police and crime reporter. Uh, um, I understand how. Uh, horrid that job can be at times, how stressful that, that kind of work is. And I wanted to join uh, 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 the volunteers for the, the county sheriffs. And 
see if I can help them with communications and such. But, you know, nobody's doing anything right now. And uh, I have a few of those uh, morbidity uh, factors in my life. You know, when they talk about when you're older and, uh, you know, if you've got yeah. asthma or you've got this or that, uh, it can be worse for you. So be really careful. So, yeah, I'm being really careful because I yeah. want to live a longer life to tell stories, you know. Yeah. And uh, Beautiful. Well, and I bet you'll have more more stories to tell as well that uh, that will come out of uh, out of your life and what what you do in the next years ahead so um, well God bless you and uh, thank you so much for spending this time with us and uh, we hope we hope to have you again sometime back on uh, on on blog talk radio so thank you John well you know I, I was going to say Someday in the future, let's do a part two, John. Yeah, I enjoy I, talking to I, you. I, agree. I, 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 <laughs> I admire what you're doing with this ministry. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I agree. We, there will be, for sure, a part two. <laughs> All right. And three and four. Okay, John, thank you so much. All right. How was that? That was cool. You uh, got a chance to walk around the world a little bit. Exposing the darkness. I'm going to think a lot about that. And uh, I suggest you do the same. How can we do that in our daily life? Where is the darkness in your life and the life of those around you? How do we expose it? Okay. God bless. See you next week. Thanks again to our guests. Have a nice